If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to Crossway. You are, um, you are welcome among us. We're glad you're here. Like me, you are probably caught up with mem- uh, memories of 15 years ago, 9-11 in 2001. Our country is uh, today in many ways remembering uh, and mourning, continuing to mourn the events of that day. And uh, we would be remiss as the people of God to think about what those events mean for our country But I also want to say that they are an opportunity for us as the people of God to remember and to remind the people around us that our country is in need of a Savior. And not just a Savior from outside forces that seek to bring it down, but a Savior from ourselves, a Savior from our own sin our own condition. So I encourage you to continue to make the most of 9-11 to love our countrymen as the Apostle Paul loved his countrymen and to point them to the only hope that there is, Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning, specifically for our country. Lord, I want to lift our nation before you. We are a a sinful people, just like any nation. We are not more sinful than many. We are maybe, as a nation, more sinful than others. Our public morality is certainly one that is turning away from you. But Lord, I'm reminded of your instructions to Timothy and 1 Timothy to pray for those who are leading in our government, even those whom we disagree with, even those whose morality contradicts your revealed truth and morality. But we do pray for them. We pray for our president. We pray for our president-to-be, whomever that may be. We pray for our senators and representatives and governors and our military forces that the gospel would make its way, the invincible gospel, into the hearts and minds of people to convert, to transform. And we ask this not only for the sake of the gospel and your glory, but for the sake of the church, that we would be able to worship in peace. If we cannot, you will give us the grace to persevere. But that is what we pray for and ask with earnestness. Help us to use the the remembering of the events of 15 years ago as doors for the gospel. In your name, we ask all of these things as we come to your word now. Amen. Well, as summer ends and there is still traveling and uh, getting back to things, and uh, our preaching schedule has been a little choppy. And so, as you know, I am preaching through the book of Acts, and Pastor Scott is working his way through the Gospel of John But I want to go to another scripture today. I want to take a bit of a detour and open up a psalm for you that we are all very desperate to hear. I know that I need to hear it for my own life far more than I would like, but as it is for me, I think it will be for you a balm to the soul. If you would, turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you were to walk into your home after a long day of work or school or running errands or taxiing your kids all over the place, to find a burst pipe in your kitchen and your kitchen being flooded with water, what would you do? Would you, would you put your groceries away first? Would you grab a Dr. Pepper and, and uh, open up the paper or start opening your mail? No. You would find the water shutoff valve as quickly as you could. Then you would either next call a plumber or start mopping. And the other would follow quickly after. What if you were to walk out into your garage and find that your two-year-old had somehow found his or her way out into the garage and was trying to open a can of paint thinner? Would you be nonchalant? Would you ignore it? Would you turn your head to suppress the image It's just too horrible to watch or to deal with? Or maybe because you would feel embarrassed if your neighbors knew your child had gotten to the can of paint thinner and that's just too much to take? They might think something was really wrong in your home. These kinds of situations compel us to respond immediately and urgently. And yet we will drink the deadliest poison and we will ignore the fact that it's killing us. We will cover up the most infected, festering sore and act like it's not even there. I'm talking about sin, of course. Our sin is the most devastating reality in the universe. There is nothing more destructive than our sin. Why do we harbor it? Why do we ignore it? Why do we suppress our consciences? Why do we desperately try to hide it? Maybe it's because we doubt God. We really impugn him with not being faithful or true to his word when we think he really won't forgive us. Maybe it's that we are afraid others won't think as highly of us as we like them to. Maybe it's because a particular sin still allures us and we're still buying into the lie that it will satisfy us. That it will deliver. And so we really don't want to give it up. Maybe it's because we despair of ever knowing victory over something we fall into over and over and over again. Whatever the sin is, whether it's pornography or whether it's harboring resentment and malice towards someone. Maybe it's just because we want to avoid the ugly, painful process that it is to deal with it. The writer of Psalm 32 is King David. 
And David knew well the horrors of sin and the anguish and the sorrow of disobeying God. And a lot of people think that Psalm 32 is a psalm that David has written in, uh, in the aftermath of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. It could be. Psalm 51 is certainly that. I tend to think that Psalm 32 is in response to some other situation. I'm sure that, that David's fall into adultery was not the only time he ever sinned or offended God. In fact, the Bible tells us in a number of places that David blew it. And yet, what is remarkable about David is not his sinlessness. It isn't his spotless record. What is remarkable about David is how much he hated his sin. David hated his sin. He always arrived at a place of loathing his sin against God. And you know, this is actually a sign of spiritual growth. It's actually a sign of maturity, being sorrowful over sin. Donald Whitney writes, The closer you get to Christ, the more you will hate sin. For nothing is more unlike Christ than sin. Because Jesus hates sin, the more like him you grow, the more you will grow to hate sin. And the more you hate sin, the more you will grieve whenever you realize that you have embraced that which killed your Savior. Amen. So being troubled over sin is the sign of progress and holiness. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. So if you're painfully aware of sin in your life, good for you. That's good. It's good. God is transforming your life to make you holy. But how do we deal with sin, specifically concealed sin? Where do we start? And maybe the most important question for every one of us is, are we willing? Are we willing to deal with concealed sin? Whether it's concealed because we're ashamed of it or whether it's concealed because we still kind of want to keep it as a pet dragon in our closet that someday is going to turn on us or whether we want to conceal it because we think it's really okay in the first place. Are you willing to deal with sin? Psalm 32 shows us the way. David displays for us four ways to deal with concealed sin. Sin that eats away at us, that devours us. First, we have to celebrate the forgiveness of the Lord. We have to celebrate the forgiveness of the Lord. Believe it or not, this is the place to start. It's where David starts. David starts by celebrating what it's like to be forgiven to have been cleansed from sin. He begins the psalm from the vantage point of having sinned, having concealed this sin for some time, and having already confessed this sin and having received forgiveness for it. And he wants to start there because he wants us to know how blessed it is. Blessed, how happy, how fulfilling in other words, David is saying, oh, to be in the place that I am in, to have this place in life, what an enviable place to be. Happy and well is the person who can stand next to me and know what this feels like and know what this experience is, to be forgiven. And notice he uses three words for sin here. The first is transgression. Transgression. This is a, an act of rebellion. If we transgress, we cross a line we know we're not supposed to cross. This is something willful. This is a disloyalty. This is something that's openly defiant to God. There's a line. I'm going to cross it. Anyway. He then calls it sin, which means missing the mark. This is talking about insufficient living. It's a morality that falls short of God's holiness. 
It's not a mistake. Okay, a mistake is when we spill the milk. A mistake is when we back the car into the garage door. A mistake is forgetting to sign your income tax return before you mail it in, which I've done multiple times over the last few years. That's a mistake. These are non-moral things. When you hear someone get up and talk about the mistake of adultery or lying or stealing, instead of calling it sin, that is someone avoiding moral responsibility. Lying is not the same as spilling the milk. Spilling the milk is a mistake. Lying is a sin. David uses another word here, iniquity, verse 2. This is a a crooked or a twisted uh, wrong behavior. It's something deviant, something perverse. And these are not three different kinds of sin. These are all facets of disobeying God. These are three different pieces of what it means to disobey him, ways of looking at sin. Whatever David has done to bring him to this place in Psalm 32, it fits all three of them. It's a line that he has crossed. It is something that has missed the mark, has been moral failure on his part, and it is something that has been deviant or twisted, crooked behavior. But for every facet of sin, there is a counter-agent, a corresponding antidote. Just as there are three words for sin, there are three words for God's gracious response. Forgiven, or literally lifted away. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are carried away from him. It speaks of the removal of sin the cleansing of its stain, the, remo- the removal of the burden of guilt. This is what's pictured in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you'll remember Christian, as he is making his way out of the city, he has a heavy backpack on, has a heavy pack, that he's, and he feels it. It's part of the convicting work. He's spoken with evangelists. He's been rejected by people because he wants to know and understand who the king is, who the prince is, and he makes his way out, and outside the city, he finds the cross. And he goes up the hill, and the closer he gets to the cross, the heavier his pack becomes until he gets there. And when he confesses and repents, the backpack The burden tumbles off of his back and rolls down the hill into the mouth of a grave. And he marvels at it and he weeps with joy. That's what David's talking about here. It's that forgiveness, this release from the burden, lifted away. He also says, blessed is the one whose sins are covered. This is an act of atonement, where the sinner's offenses are put away and the sinner is reconciled to God. It's the word that was used to describe what the people of God did on the Day of Atonement. Remember, there was one day every year, Yom Kippur, it was the Day of Atonement, they would bring a goat and the high priest would pray and he would place all of the sins of the people, figuratively, onto the goat and the goat would be chased out into the wilderness to die. Gone, banished. That's what this word is talking about. Blessed is the one whose sins have been placed on another that has atoned for them and has been banished for their sake. Blessed is the one whose iniquity is not counted. This means the sin will not be found recorded It's not in the ledger anymore. It will never come back to condemn the sinner. The three of these terms, forgiven, covered, not counted, together show the absoluteness of divine pardon. 
that God in his love and his grace would forgive, cover, and not count against us. No wonder David says, blessed, oh, happy, thrilled is the one who is in this place who can look at all of the wrong that they've done and all of the right that they have failed to do and say it's carried away, it's atoned for, it's paid for, it's covered, and it will never be counted against me. And you know what the Bible is saying here? God wants every one of us to know this blessing. God wants every one of you to know this forgiveness. God wants you to know a life that is full and well, not because there is never difficulty or hardship or pain or loss, but because sin has been dealt with and because your broken relationship with him is restored. God desires that. This is why David starts here. This is the blessing of forgiveness and freedom. It can be known. And before we even get to the part that needs to be dealt with, the sin, no, that's the goal. That's the end. That's the place God wants to take you, is to a place of blessed forgiveness and restoration. Now note, there's a qualifier in verse two. Look there again. Blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. Why? Why is this necessary to know the blessing of forgiveness, to not have a spirit of deceit? Because a spirit of deceit is a spirit of concealment. Deceit is what keeps us from forgiveness. It is deceit in our spirits that causes us to conceal transgression and sin, iniquity, to hide it. And it's not only deceit of other people, but it is deceiving ourselves. That is the most uh, dangerous practice of deceit, self-deceit. And it's deceiving ourselves that we can deceive God. God, of course, cannot be deceived even if others can and even if we can deceive ourselves. God knows. God is never deceived. It is deceit that will keep us from forgiveness. Forgiveness and freedom and blessing cannot be known by someone who in a spirit of deceit conceals their sin, tries to hide it. You can't be forgiven if you tell yourself you're okay. You can't be freed if you continue to insist there are no chains on you. Psalm 32 compels us to deal with sin head on, to deal with it head on. How do we get to this place of forgiveness? Next, we must confess sin to the Lord. We must confess that sin. We have to confess it. Verse three, David looks back at the experience that's brought him here. He remembers that he kept silent, which means that David did exactly what we do. We try to ignore it. Sometimes we coddle the sin. We stubbornly refuse to get it out into the open and deal with it before God. We numb ourselves with screens, apps, food, and sports. So we don't ever have to deal with the mess. We'd rather let it fester than to face embarrassment. We'd rather preserve others' high opinions of us than to be right with God. And so we mask it. We might mask it with small talk. We might mask it with busyness. We might mask it with religious fervor. Pastors conceal it behind their titles and their expectations for the congregation. This is keeping silent, and it is deadly to the soul. It's deadly. David remembers this, and he recalls the effects on his life. Look at what he says here. My bones wasted away through my groaning. Now, this is both, I think, literal and metaphorical. 
It's literal in this sense. I believe that sin can and does often affect our physical being. The weight of guilt and ignoring sin can and does cause emotional and mental strain that drags us down physically. That, of course, does not mean that everybody who is sick is sick because they've sinned or diseased because they've sinned or struggling with some physical ailment, long-term impairment is because they've sinned. We only have to look at the rest of Scripture to understand that. But that does not change the fact that often harboring sin produces physical effects in our lives, emotional effects in our lives. It ruins relationships. So it's literal in that sense, but it's also metaphorical in this, that I don't think David is actually beginning to experience a deterioration of his bones, like osteoporosis or something like that. When we think of the bones, we understand that the bones are the core frame or structure of our body. We have a phrase when we're really cold, don't we? I'm chilled to the bone. What does that mean? It means the cold has penetrated all the way to the core of who I am. And when David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning, he is saying that the weight and the devouring of hiding this sin has gotten to the core of myself. The weight of unconfessed sin gnaws its way far below the surface of life. It often will show up in anxiety or depression. That's not all the only reason someone experiences anxiety or depression. But I think it's worth when we go through depression or anxiety, when we look at our lives, to think, is there something I'm not dealing with before God? That's a starting place, right? Is there something I haven't confessed? I've known in my own life in the past, especially when I was younger, times of depression. And it was years before I realized that a lot of my depression was linked to idolatry in my life. I wasn't satisfied with what God was doing in my life, and my response was to sulk and be depressed about it. It's because I didn't deal with it. But that's the grace of God, right? That's the grace of God in my own life, bringing me through holiness and saying, that's not, that's not sadness, that's self-preoccupation, Sean. And I'm going to change you. And it's going to be hard at points, <laughs> but I will get there, and you'll get there. David says, your hand was heavy upon me. David recognizes the hand of God in the guilt that weighed on him constantly, day and night. David is saying, there was no sleeping to get away from it. I felt your hand, it was heavy on me. My strength was dried up. Again, this is a physical effect. He's talking about his, his energy was gone. And and you know this feeling, life is lifeless. Even if you're kind of puttering around through things, you're checking off all the boxes, you're jumping through all the hoops, you're doing everything that life is demanding of you at the moment. But life is just lifeless. Even the good things in life feel vacant. That's what David said, my strength was dried up. So even though I'm king of Israel and I'm checking off all the boxes every day, I've got no energy. I've got no life in it. Now, there is a guilt, listen carefully, there is a guilt that is not from God. There is a kind of guilt that is not from God. There is a guilt that is actually self-preoccupation, a kind of a, a defeatist, a discouragement. This is a guilt that comes from the enemy. There is a kind of guilt that doesn't come from God, but comes from the enemy. And it's a guilt that accuses and always comes back and always brings sin up from the past and always beats you down because of things that you've done in the past or failed to do. That is not a godly guilt. That is a guilt to resist. That is a guilt to fight. This is a kind of guilt that tries to accuse us before God and assaults us. 
But there is a right kind of guilt. And it's not a guilt that's vague. I just feel guilty. The right kind of guilt identifies, I know there's sin here. I've known what I've done. I need to deal with it. That's a right kind of guilt. That's the kind of guilt I was talking about at the beginning. I'm saying if you're aware of sin and frustrated with sin in your life, good. That's a right kind of guilt to be feeling and experiencing. Because we can never get it right if we don't ever feel and know the guilt. Especially when we can say, it's not just a feeling, I am guilty. (laughs) Whether I feel like it or not, I'm guilty. But there's a wrong kind of guilt. But even the wrong kind of guilt is dealt with in the same way that the right kind of guilt is, isn't it? It's to go to the Lord. David knows what he's done, and he is confessing it because he realizes the consequences in the hand of the Lord on him, the discipline. Do you know this kind of conviction? I do. I know this kind of conviction. Do you recognize when the heavy hand of God is on you? Well, fed up with the game of concealing his sin, David finally confesses, verse five. This is the remedy. It's confession. And he uses the same three words for sin. He repeats them. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Only this time they are matched not with three words for forgiveness, but three words for confession. Acknowledged. I acknowledged. This is the admission of guilt. And he acknowledges it to whom? To you, to God. You know, there is a, there is a right and proper time and a, and a need sometimes to confess sin to other people. But God comes first. Because all sin is ultimately sin against God. It's offensive to him. And that's the scope of Psalm 32. David is talking about his relationship with God. He's saying, I've got to acknowledge this to you. Begins with God. I did not cover up. Again, this is the same word uh, that verse one uses to describe how sin is atoned for. So David is making a play on words and this is his point. David recognizes that he has been trying to hide his sin. He's been trying to atone for his own sin. He's been trying to cover it for himself Listen, to cover your own sin is deceitful and dangerous. When God covers your sins, they are atoned for, they are carried away. That's what David's saying. I realized, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not try to atone for it myself or cover it up myself anymore. So in that sense, confession then, we could even say, is not only just acknowledgement, it is giving it up. Dealing with sin is really letting God deal with it. Asking God to deal with it, bringing it to him. He's the only one who can deal with it anyway. Our dealing with it is trying to atone for it ourselves or cover it up. I confess, so I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover it up anymore. I confess. And what David is talking about here with this word confess, he's talking about declaring openly to make it known, is to pull sin out into the light and call it what it is. David is actually asked king of Israel. He's probably talking about a public acknowledgement with witnesses who would hear him confessing the sin and be edified by it, even if not all of the details are knowing it, but recognizing David is confessing sin He's acknowledging it. He's dealing with it before God. They would be built up by knowing that confession was being made and sin was being dealt with. I acknowledged my sin to you. I refused to hide it any longer and I've dragged it out and I've confessed it to be what it really is. And how does the Lord respond? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here we go again. It's back to forgiveness, which takes us right back up to verses one and two, right? Blessed is the one who is forgiven. 
You forgave the iniquity of my sin. David experienced the promise that is made to us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And listen to how John connects deceit and confession. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There you go. Excuse me. That's what David's talking about. I covered it up. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. You believe that? If you do, you believe what David says in verses 1 and 2. There's blessing and happiness in dealing with sin. Concealing sin brings discipline. Concealing sin brings misery. I say to my kids a lot of times when they're complaining about a simple task, clean your room. Clean your room, do do your things. And I've got to be more sensitive about this. My kids are now in the service they haven't been up until now, but now they're old enough, they're in here. Okay. So you could do this. No, I don't want to do that. And it's 30 minutes later. And I say to them, you are working really hard to be miserable. You're working really hard to be miserable right now. You could have been done 20 minutes ago with this. Isn't that what God sometimes says to us? Sean, you're working really hard to be miserable right now. Okay. So what do you, right? Concealing sin brings discipline. It brings misery. And it can be a painful process sometimes, coming to grips with how we've spurned God, defied him, harmed others in the doing of, in the defying of God. We harm others. It's a painful process to, Understand how we've deceived ourselves. But true confession throws out all the caveats. It throws out all the excuses, all the fine print. It drags it out into the open. So we have to confess that sin. Thirdly, we have to seek refuge in the Lord. We have to seek refuge in the Lord. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, literally in the time of finding. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in the time of finding. This is prayer for God's favor, ongoing prayers of confession and receiving God's forgiveness. True and regular confession of sin keeps ongoing communion with God unobstructed. It also gives you safety. It brings safety. When you make the confession of sin the regular practice of your life, instead of concealing sin, your soul is in a ready state to find refuge in God when judgment comes. And that's what he's talking about here when he talks about the rush of great waters. Surely when the rush of great waters comes, this is judgment. David has in mind what in the ancient Near East are called wadis. They are seasonal riverbeds because they have very distinct dry seasons and rain seasons. When the rainy season comes and it's Uh, and it begins to rain, there are always flash floods, torrents of water, and these seasonal riverbeds will go from bone dry to uh, rushing torrents of water within, within minutes at times. They can be very dangerous. And David is talking about how sudden and how powerful the consequences of sin are. Listen carefully. In one sense, David is talking about final judgment. He's talking about the ultimate end. Because consequences for sin in this life always point to the end judgment. A final reconciliation with God where our sins have to be reckoned with. 
But here he has in mind, I don't think just the end judgment, but he's talking about the rushing waters of consequences for sinful behavior. If we are in a state of of ongoing confession and receiving forgiveness and not concealing sin, we are finding refuge in God. And when the waters rise, we will not be swept away. See, if we respond quickly to God's conviction, that is the time of finding. That is the, the, uh, the time when he may be found. It's what David's talking about. When you feel that heavy hand, when your bones are wasting away, when your strength is dried up and you know you are petting a sin, when you know you are concealing something and your heart is heavy and you feel misery, that is opportunity. That is opportunity to confess. And David is saying, let everyone who is godly take those opportunities to confess sin and stay in a place of safety with you so that when the waters rise, suddenly they are not swept away. Those waters won't reach us. If sin is concealed and conviction ignored, judgment will come eventually, suddenly, and really finally, often in real and tangible ways, but always in the end. But God is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive sin. He is available to preserve us from judgment. And this is what causes David to erupt with praise here. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David is not saying, I'll never know difficulty or pain in life. David is saying these consequences and judgment and your heavy hand of conviction, you will preserve me from all of the the devouring that sin does when I conceal it. You are a hiding place. The Lord is a refuge. Because you see, the faithfulness that lavishes forgiveness on the confessing sinner is the same faithfulness that protects the godly from destruction. And when the waters rise, the Lord becomes your high ground. To deal with sin now is to find refuge in him. Seek that hiding place. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the love of the Lord, lastly. Trust in the love of the Lord. David calls us to trust in him. And he's really making an appeal to us. In verse 8, he actually speaks prophetically. In other words, the I is not David, but it is the Lord speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Confession from one in whose spirit is no deceit involves not only an acknowledgement of sin, but a forsaking of it. Confession means leaving the way of disobedience and pursuing a new way. This is a promise here, verse 8 from the Lord to the one who is willing to confess sin. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. Again, three terms. This is part of the artistry of the song. Three terms. Instruct, teach, counsel. And all of these have to do with God's law. They are all related to the process of understanding what has been revealed in Torah. For David, the five books of Moses, what to us is the law or the Old Testament. I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will counsel you. If you would be free from sin, pay attention to my word. It lights the way, it teaches, it counsels, it instructs. The Lord is promising personal oversight of your path. 
personal oversight to help you walk in it. It's what he means with my eye upon you. This is not, this is not, I'm watching you. This is, I'm watching you. I see you. My eye is upon you. I care about you. I'm paying attention to your path. I'm making it straight. I'm making it level. That's what he means. His eye is upon you. God is saying, I will show you the way. I myself will illuminate the path for you. I will show you the snares set for you by the enemy. I know every root that would trip you. I know every pit that would swallow you. Trust me. Trust me. This is something that we see often in Psalms. We see it in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. That's exactly what God is promising here. Trust me. And in light of that promise, don't be obstinate. If God is going to make this kind of promise, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you in the way you should go. I'll illuminate the path. I will make it straight for you. Would, should we be obstinate? Should we be willful? Should we resist what God is doing in our lives? This is the way of the horse and the mule. That's why God compares this kind of resistance and obstinacy here with these animals. These are animals that require some external pain to force them onto the right path or to keep them going in the right direction. It's what a bit does. He mentions the bit and the bridle. It's what a bit does in the mouth of a horse. It applies pressure and just a little discomfort and pain. It turns the head of the horse and the whole horse goes. Don't be like a dumb animal who has no understanding that has to have some kind of pain applied. The pain of a heavy hand upon you, right? Strength being dried up. Hand of conviction. Don't resist. When there is sin, confess it. Don't continue to resist and work hard to be miserable by concealing the sin. Respond. Gracious God has promised how to instruct and teach and counsel. Being obstinate, neglecting the Lord's counsels to live like a brute beast. And it lands us right back in verses 3 and 4. Confessing sin, on the other hand, leads to a heart and a life that is yielded to the Lord. Because he who convicts is he who forgives. He who forgives is he who protects. And he who protects is he who instructs. In fact, David makes a point here in verse 11 that ultimately humanity is divided and to those who will confess sin and receive forgiveness and those who refuse to do so. Verse 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Why? No confession. No forgiveness. No refuge. No counsel. All because of hiding transgressions, concealing sin. There's no confession, no forgiveness, no refuge, no counsel. But, again, verse 11, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Loyal, unwavering love. Faithful, covenant love. That's what this word is talking about. It's the kind of love where God says, I will love you. It was the covenant of love that he had with his people. Faithful. Trusting in the Lord is the opposite of stubbornly resisting God's instruction. Only one who trusts God can know God's steadfast love. Only one who trusts him by confessing sin and receiving forgiveness. 
And the result in the end, verse 11, joy, joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. (laughs) And it takes us right back to verses one and two, doesn't it? Blessed is the the one who's forgiven. All of you who are upright in heart, you say, Sean, I'm not upright in heart. The upright in heart is someone who's dealing with sin, confessing sin. If you're not righteous, if you say, well, I don't know if I qualify for righteous, confess sin. Let God deal with the sin, forgiveness, carrying it away. That is covering it and bearing it away, forgiveness. How do we know that God will forgive? How has God dealt with our sin? With the cross. He's dealt with our sin at the cross. It is at the cross where forgiveness is poured out. It is in Jesus' death that atonement was made. Jesus was that one upon whom sin was laid. The goat of the great day of atonement was a picture. It was a prophecy that pointed toward Jesus, that Jesus would be the one on whom God would lay the sins of us, of people. Jesus himself carried the sin away. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There you go. That's why you can be glad and rejoice as one who is righteous and upright in heart because Jesus has been made sin for you. You might say that God's hand was heavy upon Jesus as he bore the guilt and consequences of our sin. What is the answer? How do we deal with concealed sin? We come to Jesus. We come to the cross. Come to him. Let the burden fall from your back and be swallowed by the grave to never be seen again.